I'd like to talk to you tonight about the four right or wise efforts. <laughs> One of which will be to speak louder, I guess. And right effort, as you all probably know, is part of the Eightfold Path, part of also the fourth noble truth, the truth of the, the path that leads to liberation, to freedom. And many suttas discuss uh, right effort, a wise effort, but I'm going to base this talk on a sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Samapadana Samyutta Sutta, bit of a mouthful, on the connected discourse on right effort. And what the Buddha is talking about when he talks about right effort is the cultivation of the wholesome and the reduction of the unwholesome. And it's not so much talking about what's known as virya. That's the effort of energy, of striving, of, of bringing energy to a particular task or, or activity. Um, but it's a different kind of effort. It's, it's, as I said, the effort of cultivation and reduction of the unwholesome. So the sutta is part of the Ganges repetition series. It sounds like a blues concert or something. <laughs> At Savati, there the Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, there are these four right efforts. What four? Here, Bhikkhus, a bhikkhu generates desire for the non-arising of unarisen, unarisen, evil, unwholesome states. He makes an effort, arouses energy. That's the virya that's the different from this kind of effort we're talking about here. Applies his mind and strives. He generates desire for the abandoning of arisen, evil, unwholesome states. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. He generates desire for the arising of unarisen wholesome states. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. He generates desire for the maintenance of arisen wholesome states, for their non-decay, increase, expansion, and fulfillment by development. He makes an effort, arouses energy, applies his mind and strives. These are the four right efforts. Bhikkhus, just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines towards the east, so too a bhikkhu who develops and cultivates the four right efforts slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. And it's a great actual final image to include in that sutta that's so much about effort because the flowing of a river is in some way so effortless if it just follows the course of least resistance, but it's always going in that direction. And just too, if we can employ these four right efforts in our lives, in our practice, uh, the Buddha says we will also incline towards freedom, towards release from suffering. So what we're practicing here, as I hope you all know, is mindfulness meditation. And that's a powerful technique where we are very um, aware of the moment-to-moment -moment arising and passing of experience, observing our mind-body process. But have you noticed that we can sit and observe something for years and it perhaps doesn't change that much? 
for all the talk of impermanence that we give you. Um, it may, you know, it, it may reduce a little, but we're still not actually free of it. You know, states of fear or depression or anger can still be there quite consistently with lots of observation. So in that case, when that happens, it can be sometimes helpful to use a more active or involved process in our meditation practice and in our lives. One of my resources for this talk is uh, a book by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. I think I mentioned him in my last talk also. Uh, I like to, to read his stuff. Uh, in this book, Wings of Awakening, he talks about the, the benefit, even the need for a more active involvement in our meditation practice, not one that's just a passive watching of arising and passing of phenomena. So these four right or wise efforts are, in brief, to guard against or avoid unwholesome or unskillful states that have not yet arisen. The corollary of that is to overcome or abandon unwholesome states that have arisen. The next one is to develop or cultivate wholesome states that have not yet arisen. And the fourth one is to maintain or even increase wholesome states that are currently present. The other book that was an influence for me in this talk is um, this one, a fairly recent one by the Dalai Lama, though he's a whole publishing industry of himself. I'm sure since this one came out about six months ago, he's written three or four more. This one's called The Art of Happiness. And when I first started to read it uh, earlier this year, it sounded very familiar to me. And after a while I said, this is just the four right efforts. He's just, you know, writing a book about the four right efforts. He never called it that, but I could tell the way he was relating to the art of happiness, um, following on from James's talk last night, that he saw it very much in this process of um, overcoming the difficult, abandoning the difficult, and cultivating the wholesome. And he really talks about the necessity of doing that, of really actively working with those difficult or challenging states of mind when they arise, that we can actually have an effect on them. We don't need to be victims of them, to be always at their mercy. And he gives lots of practical advice on how to do that. So, you know, James has that great book he was speaking, uh, referring to last night on the nine choices of happy people. This is really the Buddhist way of um, coming to that same degree of happiness. And just as those people worked very creatively with their situations, as I said, the Dalai Lama describes some practices and ways that we can do that uh, in, the, in the context of our meditation practice. So obviously, the practice that we do here, mindfulness practice, is in and of itself about developing wholesome states of mind. It's what happens, hopefully, um, as we practice. And it's about maintaining those states when they arise. Just being in the retreat, the renunciation that we uh, go through when we come on retreat is a very wholesome factor, is a very freeing quality that we bring to our lives. And the effort that we put in while we practice is also very wholesome, a, a great uh, attribute in our practice. And also any effort and what we do in our daily practice is wholesome. This cultivation of the wholesome goes against much of the tide of our society. There's so much in our society that we're bombarded with through the media, through film, through music, 
that actually is about cultivating, sometimes even celebrating the unwholesome. You know, how many films are put out that I actually just choose not to go and see because of their glorification of violence, their indulging in those kinds of mind states. So we're really fighting the tide of a lot of our conditioning and a lot of our culture when we take on this task of abandoning the unwholesome, of reducing the unwholesome in our lives and in our minds. And this overcoming or abandoning is definitely a gradual practice. It's not something that we just set our minds to do and it happens automatically and easily. It's really quite gradual. We just come to see more and more clearly the pain involved in these unwholesome or unskillful mind states or actions. The pain that we cause ourselves or others, you know, when we criticize, when we gossip, when we do something that that hurts someone else through our speech or our actions. But it's like diet or exercise. You know, we know it's good for us, we know it's what we should do, but it really takes effort and commitment to keep it up. And I often think of exercise as sort of like the maintaining and the cultivating of the wholesome. And diet for me is mainly around avoiding the unwholesome, just staying away. There's... uh, a wonderful story of a Tibetan monk who goes to visit the Dalai Lama after he's escaped from Tibet and having been in a Chinese prison. And he talks to the Dalai Lama about what it was like to be in prison and the the hunger that he faced, the beatings, the torture, the fear of not knowing, you know, would he be alive the next day, the constant threat uh, against his life. And he started to say to the Dalai Lama, I felt in terrible danger. And the Dalai Lama said, yes, of course, you know, you never knew from one moment to the next, so much suffering, you know, you could have been killed. And he said, no, no, wasn't that, that didn't matter. I felt in terrible danger of becoming angry. And it really goes to show how deeply he appreciated um, the unskillfulness, the, the, the pain that would result, the suffering that would result from arousing of anger, even in a situation that we would see as completely justifying that anger. So we begin this practice by acknowledging that we can't control the thoughts that arise in our mind. I'm sure we've all seen this already on the retreat. You know, where do they come from? If only we knew. But we start to see that with clarity and mindfulness, We can let go of negative thoughts. We can apply antidotes. We can have a more skillful response to um, whatever our current experience is. But it's really important to remember in taking on this practice that these efforts to cultivate and to abandon, to avoid, whatever they might be, must be skillful in and of themselves. We really don't want to add on to the difficult mind states that we have by further judgment or aversion or whatever mind state we might want to add to it. It's really important to do it with as much kindness and compassion and clarity as we can bring to the practice. And every one of us has to learn what works for them. There's not a universal response or right action to a particular situation or a particular manifestation of a hindrance or a difficult mind state. Sometimes we can just be aware of an unskillful or a painful mind state or sensation with equanimity, and it will dissipate, it will lessen. 
But other times we need to make a more conscious effort to become free of it. And it's important also to tune one's effort to the level of the task, that the effort, the mindfulness, the antidote, whatever it is that we apply to the situation is balanced by whatever it is meeting in that moment. You know, you don't want to be smashing a small moment of irritation with a sledgehammer. But if there's a strong feeling of aversion or desire or fear, then an equal amount of mindfulness or antidote needs to be applied. And also these four efforts are actually just sort of, what's the analogy? The same side of a single, it's not a coin because it's four-sided. You know, in doing one, we actually do the other. You know, when we abandon, we cultivate. When we maintain, we avoid. They actually all support each other. So in doing one, the other automat- the others automatically can happen. I remember uh, being on a, a long metta retreat, intensive, doing intensive metta practice. And a couple of weeks in, my practice was going fairly well as far as my concentration, deepening in concentration, being able to be with the phrases, and a fair degree of you know, what I saw as just kindness and well-wishing being present. But I certainly wasn't tapping into what I'd hoped to, which is what we all warn against, but I wanted it, you know, that blissful, flowing, gushing, golden light of all-pervading metta just wasn't happening for me. And I remember going into my teacher and reporting this, you know, quite, not, not saying that's what I wanted, but just telling him what my current experience was. And he adjusted my instructions for the practice very slightly, but he definitely said, why don't you try this instead? And I came out of that interview and I thought, oh, he's saying that because he thinks I'm hopeless. You know, it's not working doing it that way. I might as well give up. You know, he doesn't think I can ever do this. And I went out to do my walking meditation. It was just filled with all of these thoughts of self-judgment and and, uh, loss and, and fear and recrimination, you know, I think James went through a litany of it yesterday, I can totally relate, you know, you'll never love, you're cold, you're indifferent, you don't care about people, this will never work for you, why did you even come on this retreat? You know, I could just see myself spiraling down into this well of self-pity and aversion around this, the, these judgments around myself, and it was a very familiar place to be in. I knew it quite well. Um, and the, the, the thing that I started to see, though, is that I always felt that when I was telling myself these things, I was seeing clearly. I was actually seeing things the way they were, and I was applying wisdom to the situation. And then I also reflected that I'd done this before, and I'd sunken into this well of despair and self-hatred, and I'd wallowed there for however long it took, a day, a week, whatever it might be, But I remembered that eventually, at some point, I would have to get out. And putting all that string of thoughts together, I thought, why don't I just compress it? And instead of going down there and dwelling, why don't I just say, this is who I am. You know, this is the amount of metta that I'm feeling. That's all I can do. You know, I can't do any different or better than what I'm doing. And it was just such a feeling of grace and liberation in that insight. I just accepted what my practice was and went on from there. And I just took a whole detour around that dwelling in misery that I could have so easily done. And it wasn't like, you know, I immediately fell into, you know, 
feeling those overgushing metta feelings. I just continued with my practice. And every time those thoughts came up of judging that it wasn't enough, that it wasn't good enough, I'd just say to myself, this is what I am. This is what I'm feeling. This is who I am. Let's go on from here. And it was such a liberation for me to see the possibility of doing that, to see that I could replace those negative thoughts with ones of acceptance. And I can't say, you know, I replaced them with ones of great love or compassion or, or, you know, anything like that. But just acceptance was enough to be a really huge shift to me. And it still stays with me strongly today. At first in our practice, we spend a lot of time working with the unwholesome and the unskillful, avoiding, overcoming, you know, seeing clearly, whatever it might be. But then we do move on to more and more cultivating and maintaining the positive, the wholesome. We get smarter. And there's a story that James, I know, loves to read from that he said I could share with you this, this evening that is very similar to my, my personal story that I just shared with you about my metta practice. Many of you have probably heard it, but it encapsulates so clearly um, our task when we begin to work in this way with the four right efforts that I wanted to share it with you. It's called An Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Portia Nelson. One, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Two, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Five, I walk down another street. (laughs) So the first three of these, the first verses or paragraphs of this parable are like the arisen unwholesome. We still get caught, you know, it's there, um, whatever degree of clarity we have around it, but sooner or later we see it and we get out. The second one, the second to last one, is when we are just beginning to learn to avoid it. You know, we see the potential of difficulty, of pain, of suffering, and we go around, we go another way. The last one is the best of all. We stay away from the problem. We avoid it altogether. So the first of these right efforts or wise efforts is avoiding or guarding against unwholesome mind states that have not yet arisen. Now that's an interesting place to be. They actually haven't come yet. We're in that place of perhaps that gap that Guy was talking about, resting in that gap between feeling and craving. So it's a place with a lot of possibilities, with a lot of potentials of which way we can go with it. 
I was reflecting if, if, Clinton had, if President Clinton had had this teaching in mind when he first met Monica Lewinsky. He could have saved himself and the country a lot of suffering and saved a lot of parents from having to explain things to their children that they probably never thought they would have to do in the context of the evening news and the President of the United States. And it's sort of like, you know, every horror movie you see where there's this door or something and the, you say, don't go there, you know, don't open that door, don't let that person in, you know, don't walk down that street. And somehow the characters are always impelled to do whatever you know is bound to lead to some terrible catastrophe. And just like the people in the horror movie, sometimes we just can't avoid coming into contact with uh, controlling what we, what we think and what we feel. We see that very clearly. But we can start to see how much each moment of our experience conditions the next. And the more anger is present and the more we dwell in it, the more we allow it to um, accumulate and increase, the more likely it is that in the next moment we'll also experience anger and perhaps even the results of our anger if we, we express it to other people. But we can begin to decondition these old habits of mind and condition new ones with our mindfulness. The Buddha obviously really knew the importance of being aware of our states of mind. In the opening verse of the Dhammapada, the first verse that that is the start of this wonderful collection of short poems and texts, he says, Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is chief. If you speak or act with an unpure heart, then unhappiness will follow you as 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 the wheel of the cart follows the ox that pulls it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak and act with a pure heart, and happiness will follow you like a shadow that never leaves. So in learning to avoid or a guard against unwholesome mind states, we can learn to avoid situations that challenge our good intentions to not have them arise, to not be at the mercy of them. And it's sort of like, you know, when you're smoking, trying to give up smoking, you don't go to a bar. If you're on a diet, you don't go to Sizzlers. You know, you you make wise decisions about what you do with your time. And it's like that fourth stage of the parable, you know, First we walk around the hole, but we can still see it. We're aware of the danger of the temptation. But finally we learn to take another road altogether. But the avoidance that I'm talking about here, though, it's important to recognize it's not one of suppression or fear or repression. It's an avoidance. It's not talk, and it's not that of not talking about difficult situations or not facing them because they're challenging or we don't like them or they bring up fear or other mind states with them. You know, it's not the avoidance that happens in dysfunctional families where there are all these things we just don't talk about. You know, it's the group collective uh, decision not to mention this. Or when we deny repressed anger or, or grief or fear. It's not that kind of avoidance. It's the avoidance of wisdom when we see clearly that something is not skillful or wholesome. And it's really helpful to create conditions that don't encourage the negative mind states. And the Buddha, again, often talked about the value, the benefit 
of association with the wise as a really a great resource, a strength in our practice. He said, with regard to external factors, I do not envision any other single factor like friendship with admirable people in being so helpful for a practitioner who is a learner, who has not attained the goal, but remains intent on the unexcelled security from bondage. A practitioner who is a friend with admirable people abandons what is unskillful and develops what is skillful. A practitioner who is a friend to admirable people, one reverential, respectful, doing what her friends advise, these are wise friends, remember, alert, mindful, attains step by step the ending of all fetters. So in this learning to avoid, learning to be wise and skillful around um, unwholesome or unhelpful mind states, it's important to see the thoughts and urges around them for what they are. And we've talked about this quite a lot. The possibility we have to see them clearly, to know them for what they are, and to know we don't have to act on them. We don't have to let them control us. One of the helpful lines to remember is thoughts only have the power that we choose to give them. With mindfulness, we needn't be a victim to them. We needn't let them control us. And we can make that choice that we've talked about of then acting with more skillfulness. The second of these right efforts is that of abandoning or overcoming unskillful or unwholesome mind states when they have arisen. So they're here. And as I said in my hindrance talk, it's really important to know that they're present. You know, this is when we've fallen in that hole. Look around and see where we are, know what's happening. Those of you that get into arguments with people, I'm sure there's some of you, I know I do, even in our relationship, as good as it is most of the time, know that temptation. Maybe they're one-sided arguments and he doesn't notice them. (laughs) Know that temptation when difficult situations come up. And I know I fall into it a lot of those mind states of denial or self-justification or recrimination or, you know, you said this, that's why I feel this way. You know, wanting to push away, you know, not really open to the difficulty that's present. And it's one that I really have to work with a lot to be able to be aware of that tendency when it's there and just see how it doesn't really help. You know, can we just really acknowledge that there's a problem here and say, I'm sorry, or can I talk, let's talk about this. As I say, I look, Guy is my teacher in this. He's much better at it than I am. But occasionally I'm able to do that. And it's such a relief to actually acknowledge that, to own that, and to to try and move in a different direction. To keep up the cartoon theme, one of my favorites is Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes. And I'm sure many of you know Calvin, great teacher for all of us. And so just imagine Calvin with a snowball. Have you, there's so many of those images of Calvin with a snowball. And he's ruminating on either the quality of his snowball, it's particularly slushy, or perhaps a nice amount of grit or one of his favorites is the frozen one, you know, that he kept from winter and put in the freeze and he's got out on a hot summer's day. And then he's sitting there or standing there with the snowball in hand 
And you know there's that moment where he looks towards you out there reading the cartoon and he's contemplating the difficulty that he's about to get into and weighing, you know, is the pleasure of hitting Susie with the snowball greater than the potential difficulty. The calculations get even more co complicated when it's close to Christmas and he's worried that Santa Claus might be watching and will take a few points off. Somehow he always ends up throwing the snowball. Even though in most of the ones, the cartoons that I've read, he gets into more trouble up, or you know, he gets more back than he actually ever got. You know, he usually ends up with his face down in the snow and Susie gets back at him. He just doesn't seem to be able to abandon that, that, that desire, that intention to throw the snowball. And so these mind states that arise, these unwholesome mind states, are obviously of many varieties, and we've spoken about them a lot here. They're so familiar, of anger and fear and worry, desire, greed, lust. As I said in my hindrance talk, the first step is to be aware of them, to be mindful of them. We can't do anything unless we know that they're present. But then we need to actually have an intention to do something about them, whatever that might be, whatever level that might be, and also the faith that we can, the trust that we can, that we're not at the mercy of them. We then need to gauge the appropriate of the response that may be necessary to abandon this tendency, to have it dissipate, to let go of it. And the stages of response might be something like this, from mild to stronger. The first and usually the most helpful and often all we need is mindfulness, is just bringing to bear the power and the clarity of an awake and alert mind that fully opens to and is with our experience as it is. Mindful of the thoughts that are involved, the feeling in the body, the mood, the emotions that are present, really with that whole experience can often be the best and most useful antidote. If that doesn't seem to work, if we don't seem to be able to gain a steadiness of mind um, and we keep getting lost in the story, in the thoughts, can sometimes be helpful to move to something neutral like breath, like, like the breath or sounds, whatever that might be for you. We can use reflection to see the to, to, to really uh, come to understand the painfulness of these unskillful mind states that they cause us and others, the painfulness just in experiencing them, but also the pain that they cause when we act them out in, in speech or deed in the, word, in the world. And we can look at our, reflect on our past actions and the consequences of them and just come to see what, what happened when we acted in a certain way we can begin to apply antidotes. The antidotes of metta, patience, tolerance, compassion or renunciation, whatever might be called for in the situation. The Dalai Lama actually says that the only factor that can give you refuge or protection from the destructive effects of anger and hatred is your practice of tolerance and patience. So this process or practice can become more automatic as we bring our mindfulness to bear on it. The, we become aware of the unwholesome states much more quickly, especially when it's a habitual pattern, even though sometimes we may still act out on it, just like the whole that we still fall in on. 
And again, as I said, we have to learn to work with these mind states skillfully, not add more aversion or judgment when they're present, the mind states of anger or fear or greed, whatever that might be. It was not the Buddha's intention or message when he taught this practice. The third of these right efforts is that of cultivating, fostering, or encouraging wholesome mind states that haven't yet arisen. How do we do that? You know, they're not even here yet. Well, metta is one of the traditional ways that we teach for cultivating wholesome states of mind. Um, And you've probably all had a taste of how it can really bring about a sense of well-wishing for oneself and other beings. And, you know, as in my experience, it doesn't have to be this gushing out, flowing of boundless, unconditional love, but just that ability to hold oneself or hold another being with care and compassion and wish them well. But this practice of metta is not an easy practice, as you probably experienced. It's not as though we just sit down and say the words and it all happens from there. Um, It's really a process of purification and investigation because often when we practice metta, especially when we practice it intensively, the opposite can arise. You know, here we are trying to wish people well and feelings of anger or feelings of attachment can arise. And when that happens, the, the guideline is that we can bring our mindfulness to bear on those experiences and really see them, that they're present and come to some acceptance about them. I was recently uh, talking to Rebecca, who works in our family program, and she was telling me some stories about her uh, experiences in teaching the Dharma to the very young children in the family program. And it was really quite inspiring to hear some of the things that the kids were saying. And she spoke of this one young girl who said, you know, when I'm really having trouble with my little brother, I really try to remember the practice of loving kindness. And I was so inspired to think this was like a five-year-old or something who was just able to remember loving-kindness when she was in difficulty. And it sort of makes you think, well, if she can do it, maybe there's a hope that I can. So how to, again, uh, encourage these wholesome states of mind? Well, we can do it deliberately by putting ourselves in places where they more easily happen, where thoughts and actions that are wholesome or skillful can be arisen, can be cultivated. One of the obvious ones is by doing service work, is by actively going out and connecting with people and helping them and really fostering that sense of connection that metta teaches us. And even though service work can be challenging, again, it's where the purification and the cultivation of the wholesome can happen. It's a wonderful quote that James just found for me tonight on the power of doing service and the joy of doing service by Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian poet. He said, I awoke and saw that life was service. I acted and behold, service was joy. Really a sense of that integration that can happen into our happiness when when we act and help others. Spending time or living in a Dharma community is a wonderful way of encouraging wholesome states of mind, though any of us that have done that can know that often it's actually the opposites that seem like they're more manifesting. I know for myself that I've lived in communities and 
seeing the challenges that come up in that sort of lifestyle. But again, it's really um, a place of purification. I learned so much from my time of living in uh, intentional community, especially spiritual communities. And just coming to retreats, attending sitting groups, um, you know, sharing your um, understanding with friends, our daily practice. These are the things we do to cultivate these states of mind, pleasant, uh, wholesome states of mind when they're not, not present. And we can also use reflection and discernment so we can actually see what for us cultivates the wholesome, become aware of the cycles of cause and effect, the laws of karma. And we, there are all sorts of practices that we teach that the Buddha taught for cultivating wholesome states of mind. You know, we can go on through these endless lists, the eightfold path, you know, right action, right livelihood. Um, the precepts, that practice of non-harming that we took at the beginning of the retreat, really taking that on as a life practice. Cultivating the factors of awakening or enlightenment, of generosity or renunciation or patience. Doing reading or study, reflection, associating with like-minded people, as I said earlier. And even just reflecting on and connecting with our commitment to awaken with those deepest aspirations and intentions that James spoke about last night, really having those be a source of nourishment and aliveness for ourselves, a source of refuge um, that can really fuel our commitment. The fourth of these right efforts is that of maintaining or even increasing wholesome states of mind when they are present. Often in this culture, in this society, we don't appreciate the wholesome qualities that we do have. We tend so much to self-deprecation, to not allowing ourselves to feel or acknowledge the joyful, the wholesome, the pleasant when it's present. Asian cultures, in the little that I know of them, seem to have much more of a, a sense of being able to do that, a sense of that it's appropriate and helpful to know when you've done something well, something that was beneficial, and really appreciate it, reflect on it, let it fuel your practice and your further actions. And when we do this reflection, it actually reinforces the good feeling that we had in performing that beneficial or wholesome action. Just like Sylvia's instruction to be aware of the wholesome, of the pleasant, when it's here, that we don't always have to be focusing on the hindrances or the unpleasant or the difficult, we can actually um, gain nourishment from and appreciate the pleasant and the wholesome when, we're there, when they're there. And of course, this is not an encouragement to pride or self-aggrandizing. It's not to puff ourselves up and really go on an ego trip about this, but it's just to acknowledge what was actually there. We can reflect on the happiness that these kinds of actions bring ourselves and bring others and see the effects on our lives of having these wholesome states manifest for us. You know, see how they bring more happiness. They actually bring friendship. They bring appreciation. They bring contentment to our lives. And when these wholesome states are present, like generosity or patience or compassion, really give yourself permission to feel them. Really let themselves sink in so that they become more natural, more flowing. 
I thought we might actually do a little experiential exercise here in the talk about appreciating the wholesome. So you don't have to change your posture, but if you just close your eyes and just bring to mind some good or kind act that you've done, something fairly recently if you can. And it doesn't be, have to be something huge like taking in a family of Romanian refugees, <laughs> but just something simple that you've done like you know, not only taking one slice of pizza because you know there might be enough to go around or doing your yogi job really well so that the bathrooms are clean for other people or the pots or the dishes are clean or letting someone go ahead of you in the food line or helping someone who's having uh, some difficulty here on the retreat. If there's nothing that comes to mind, that's fine. You can just reflect on your wish to be happy and your sincere motivation that brought you to this retreat, your wish to develop in wisdom, in understanding and compassion. And just let those thoughts, those images, those feelings resonate in you. Just feel them. Feel the qualities that they bring up. Feel them in the body, in the mind. Perhaps even they bring a smile to your face as you reflect on the fact that you cared about someone. Uh, Just yesterday I happened to read in a magazine an article about a a disease that a friend of mine just contracted. And I made a point of calling her and just saying, did you see that? And she said, oh, I heard about it. I I don't have a copy. And I faxed it to her. Just a little thing like that that we may have done that touched someone. Really just feel it in your body and your mind. Feel the lightness that comes with it. Perhaps a sense of joy or peace. It's important not to deny yourself this pleasure. It's actually wholesome. And it's actually a positive feedback for future actions. You're more likely to do it in the future because you know how good it feels. So you can open your eyes if you wish and come back. So like working with the precepts, these four right efforts or four wise efforts are guidelines for practice. You know, as much as possible, we don't need to take them as thou shalt or thou shalt not. They're really more like oars that we can use or rudders that we can use to steer our actions. You know, a little bit more this way, a little bit less this way. As we continue to reflect on them, we become more aware of the impact of both impact and consequences of both the unskillful and the skillful actions in our lives. And the light bulb goes on more quickly, more easily. And there's a mnemonic that's helpful. You know, the list of when I first read it in the sutta was probably a little complicated to take in. But the simple thing to remember are there's the four of them, and it's avoid overcome, develop, and maintain. And you may come up with different words that that, um, speak to you more clearly than those, but just something along those lines. Avoid, overcome, develop, and maintain. And again, it's important not to use the list or the teachings or this practice to beat yourself up about 
but to realize the pos- that they lead to possibilities for greater freedom and happiness. And James last night said that quote that I love a lot, where the Buddha said something like, if it were not possible to do so, to abandon the unwholesome, I would not ask you to do so. But because it is possible to, d- to abandon the unwholesome, then I ask you to do so, and you can do it. If it were not possible to cultivate the wholesome, I would not ask you to do it. But it is possible to cultivate the wholesome, and therefore I ask you to do it. So these really are practices that we can use both in our life here on retreat, but definitely in the world. They apply equally, you know, as we practice here and are very diligent and mindful about the mind states that arise, they're also very applicable as we act and interact in the world about our own internal experience and the way we relate to others. So I'd like to finish with um, a quote from the Dalai Lama again, where he says, In a discipline is the basis of a spiritual life, the fundamental, fundamental method of achieving happiness. Inner discipline is the basis of a spiritual life, the fundamental method of achieving happiness. And it's discipline, especially inner discipline, is not a concept or a word that we like to think about a lot. You know, we've moved away from the rigidity of discipline. But there really is a power in knowing that we have the ability to take charge to be conscious of, aware of, and have some say in what our experience is and the way we relate to others. And that by being mindful, taking care, and even applying some inner discipline, we can actually move more and more towards happiness. It's not a discipline that leads to suffering or leads to rigidity or leads to being closed off. It's actually a discipline that leads to more and more happiness, and more and more freedom. And I'll really finish with a poem by Lao Tzu that says, Some say that my teaching is nonsense. Others call it lofty or impractical. But those who have looked inside themselves, this nonsense makes perfect sense. And to those who put it into practice, this loftiness has roots that go deep. I have just three things to teach, simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Simple in actions and in thoughts, you return to the source of being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. Compassionate towards yourself, you reconcile all beings in the world. So let's just sit together for a moment.
So thank you for your attention. There's now about 45 minutes for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.